Hello, good day, and welcome. It's our podcast, What Freaks Out Founders. And we're a little different than the usual startup hero worship podcast. We want to talk about the fear, the anxiety, the neuroses that can freak out founders of all sizes, all shapes, all descriptions, and honestly, all levels of success. My name is Matt Toner. I'm your host. I come from that space. I know folks in that space. And I know it's not all sunshine and roses. With us to help make this happen is my producer, Mike Rosen, and he's going to help us today talk about all those things, those neuroses that founders will recognize to themselves, what they're trying to confront, what they're trying to overcome, and in some cases, what they're trying to harness. So stay tuned, enjoy the guests. They are amazing, and they're going to unpack their wisdom, their learnings, and the things that frighten them. So stay tuned. This is What Freaks Out Founders. A lot of times on this podcast, we meet with founders. Some of them are recently discovered their entrepreneurship. Some of them are more lifelong serial starters and probably every flavor in between, uh, which is great because it really is a vast panoply of pursuits and talents and ambitions. And it, I really think it reflects the condition in many ways. But sometimes you come across one of those founders or people that are really given to a vision. And the vision that comes to them sometimes very early in life, sometimes it's later. But because that vision is so well articulated, it's fits so firmly in their brain, in their psyche, uh, it, it becomes their life's work. And they may tackle it in 10 other ways as they go, but eventually they will keep cleaving towards that life goal. And it's, it's kind of refreshing to see. And for me, to be honest, uh, a little intimidating because I don't really fall into that camp myself. But today's guest, Harrison Smith, certainly falls into that group. He's an impressive young man, dropped out of university to become a startup founder. I won't tell you too much about it. I'll let him tell it himself. It really is quite an interesting story. But uh, it, he really is kind of living and breathing that idea of a commitment to a vision that might take many forms over the course of his lifetime and career. But you really get a sense from talking with him and asking him questions and listening to how he responds uh, not just the text, but the subtext, that this is a person who's on a journey that will take them through a lifetime. So without any further ado, let's dive into Dear Life. So on this episode, we are joined by Harrison Smith, the co-founder of an interesting startup that I'm, I'm personally kind of wondering why no one has really done it this well yet, called Dear Life. And he's joining us today from their home base of Halifax, which for those of you that are not geographically dialed in, is kind of on the eastern edge of Canada. So you kind of go to the state of Maine if you're in the U.S. and you keep going up the coast. Keep following until you see a bunch of lighthouses. And that is typically what we think of as Halifax. Do I have that right, Harrison? That is correct. <laughs> a very, very accurate description. There you go. Well, hey, glad you could join us today. Glad you could join us. And again, you know, the concept of the pod is, you know, what scares startups and founders like yourself. But also, I do want to talk a bit about your company because there is an interesting crossover. Like, you know, most people will say that one of the most common fears is public speaking that people have. And here you are on a podcast, which is a kind of public speaking. But also, obviously, the other big thing that people just notoriously fear is is their passing is death itself and you deal in death with your startup is that correct absolutely and it's funny you mentioned that too i was reading just the other day there's a book by mark manson and he was talking about 
kind of the primal ambitions of all of us really result and stem from our fear of death. So that's why you have people who put their names on libraries and um, they build statues and they, they do what they do because it's kind of this fear of, well, I never really want to die. So I want to externalize my legacy. Right, exactly. So you don't build libraries or park benches for people to stick <laughs> their name on. You do something, you and your team do something that's very kind of conventionally or contemporaneously important. Something that I think people don't really pay attention to, but our biggest legacies today, we're digitally creating constantly. And yet it's none of it's being really captured or crowded or curated. And I understand that's kind of what you folks do. You're kind of in that interesting space. That's exactly it. And honestly, I don't think I could have said it better myself. Oh, well, we're done here then. Great. Short, short episode. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, no, you absolutely nailed it. I mean, we are creating piece by piece our digital selves. Yet no one has really taken all the pieces and curated them together. And really, that's what we do at Dearless. That's really the basis for what we do. It's really to create this digital version of your legacy, of yourself. Interesting. So do you do that through online channels like social media? People will kind of like link up their Facebook and their Instagram and whatnot, and you use that as your, your seedbed? Or are you doing something more in VR, like metaversical, where you're creating living testimonials. At our current stage, it's slightly more of the former. Okay. But I will also say that it's largely insufficient. We thought, hey, you know, <laughs> ideally people connect their Facebook and Instagram camera rolls and boom, you know, okay, we're done. This is your life story. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. For a lot of people, especially in the older generations, well, much of their life isn't documented digitally. And there's just so many holes throughout their life that just simply isn't captured. So. How do you capture what isn't captured? And that's largely one of the biggest challenges that we've faced so far is, well, for what isn't captured, how do we document it? So currently I was watching a podcast. Um, well, it's the Joe Rogan Experience with Elon Musk. I think it was 1-1-6-0. And Elon talks about how right now the flow of data, even though we think it's a lot, is really between ourselves and you know, our, our digital counterparts. It's only really you know, the size of a straw at the moment. Soon enough, it's going to be a river. And it's really at that point moving forward that something like this is going to be not only possible, but extraordinary in terms of the experience. So the psychology of the dread or the psychology of, of death, you know, which is something which is abstract. We can't imagine non-existence as humans, right? Just It's not our frame of reference. You know, we, we know it's not like going to sleep. We don't know really what it is, depending on your personal philosophy. What drew you to this? Was it like a childhood fear and anxiety or something more personal or, you know, just benignly an interesting problem that should be solved? Yeah. So I think if I look back, I can probably pin it down to a few key moments in my life. So when I was younger, I always had this fear of not fitting in. And I remember distinctly in grade one, two of more of the cooler kids, they go, oh, you're going to hockey tonight. So I'm like, well, I, I got to go play hockey. I got to go fit in that way. Um, I joined hockey and fortunately it didn't quite work. So then I thought, well, I'm just going to do something really cool with my life. And everyone's going to think, oh, you know, he's cool. And that'll be kind of the way to fit in. So it, it became almost this desire to do something extraordinary. But with that, my fear of not fitting in morphed into something much larger, which is the fear of not accomplishing something great with my life. And as a result, you know, this desire to spend my time very wisely and achieve all these memories and great experiences well, what's the point of that if they're not documented? So that was kind of the, the cliff, if you will, that I jumped off of. 
uh, in terms of your life because you know, I think a lot of people that have all these amazing stories and experiences I think a lot of people have things similar to the way I think but none of them are documented mm -hmm. all these amazing experiences fade into oblivion so your life really solves that because it preserves these amazing experiences for generations to come yeah I mean you, you certainly have hit it I mean people tend to reassemble that narrative or that you know story scaffold the people who survive them do so retroactively. You know, they're going through the personal effects. They find a diary. They find some photos. They can't quite figure out who's in the photo, right? Or maybe someone else remembers, oh, that I think was his cousin. And it looks like that was when they lived in the house by the river or whatever. And it's, it, it, it isn't great, you know? And some people kind of appoint themselves family historians. But even those folks don't do a tremendous job of capturing the oral history of all these people that went before them. And then it starts to fade away again and much, much is lost, right? So how, how do you folks address that sense of memorial or how do you folks address that, that sense of capturing it, like capturing that life experience? Like what, how does dear life work? Right. So in an ideal world, <laughs> it's completely automatic. Yeah. You know, all the things you just touched on there, the oral history, the narratives, you know, okay, a picture tells a thousand words, but which words are they? So right now, it's fairly manual. We say, okay, we're going to sit down with you, almost like a podcast style, and just ask you a lot of questions for several hours, capture a bunch, and then, okay, you've got the foundation, and you can build off of that, and it's fine. In the future, what we're kind of thinking is, well, we need to really make this automatic. Now, that is the much larger challenge at hand. So in order to make this automatic, we're going to have to really replicate two really key parts of the human brain. First, the hippocampus, which is all the memories, so those would be kind of your photos and videos. The other would be more so the limbic system, so that's the more emotional and tangible part, the oral history, if you will. And uh, that's kind of the, the, the challenges at hand that we're pondering. Mm -hmm. So Harrison, you speak with a very easy comfort with uh, you know scientific terminology and things like of that kind. Is your background more in the sciences or biology or philosophy? Because you're forming this idea of, you know, recreating and extending a very important part of the human experience, hopefully for all time, or at least until our hard drives break down. Uh, so what's the background? What brought you to this academically? So my background is actually computer science, where I studied at Dalhousie University for two years. But I actually ended up dropping out to pursue dear life, which I've been now working on for two years. But a lot of this just comes naturally from, from my passion with the space, you know, the, the topic of this podcast is more so around fears of founders. I think that's what has driven me to really pursue a lot of this knowledge itself because my fear of living a life that isn't documented has pushed me to acquire all this knowledge and study various domains, if you will, to, to produce a solution that does solve the problem. Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting. No, you, this is not your first startup exactly no like it's it's like you're you're like at first and a half base almost you you've done something before but this it sounds like this is your first real venture right with a proper team and proper financing and proper product uh, what was the first one or the predecessor to this if, if there was one if that's the right way to look at it yeah so when i was actually in my senior year of high school i had this idea for an e-commerce based social network and I, you know, had the ambitions of, oh, we're going to go and beat Instagram and Facebook and all the others because, you know, I, I, I wanted to be ambitious. <laughs> and uh, essentially how it worked 
was we would attach, it's very similar to Instagram, we would attach a banner ad below each and every post. And every time someone saw your post, you would get a kickback of the ad revenue. So essentially, you got paid to post. You got paid every time someone saw your post. Right. And this is really attractive to larger content creators because we would do the math and say, hey, you, you make a butt ton, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if you use our software. What actually ended up happening on release because we were just, you know, 17-year-olds at the time, we released it. and <laughs> We did pretty good at customer acquisition, but uh, we released it and we had so much traffic that it actually crashed the site because we built it so poorly. <laughs> we had to go raise funds to kind of beef up the system. Well, that's kind of a high-class problem to have. And I often <laughs> say to people, you know, you, you haven't been part of a startup until you've had a server crash because you didn't expect the traffic and you built it uh, with bailing wire and uh, a bit of tape. But, uh, you know, so back to the scientific stuff, is butt-ton a scientific term at Dalhousie? Or... <laughs> no, that is uh, probably Harrisonism. No, that's fine. That's, that's, that's perfect. So a few times you've talked about this drive, and I, I get the sense that, you know, you're a young fella. And yet you've got already this kind of drive or anxiety or an awareness, at least, of the transitory nature of our existence and, you know, being remembered or thought of or having a connection or significance. That is maybe a little atypical of, you know, I'm guessing you're in your 20s, uh, of most early founders. They're focused on other stuff like conquering the world or getting a car that's pretty fly or growing their company to gargantuan heights. And yet you've got this other, you have this other layer going on. You know, there's like a, a motivating force that, that's a little bit unique. Yeah, and I think it all ties back to this desire to achieve some form of immortality. You know, that's really what drives me on the day-to-day -day basis of real life. And I know it's the driving force as to why we're going to succeed. But in terms of why I'm, I'm so passionate about immortality in the first place, I think it you know, ties back to the origins of this conversation. It's this desire to never truly die. It's this desire to produce a legacy that goes beyond myself. And yeah, it, it is fairly different in terms of a lot of people, a lot of founders, they want to produce a, a company that scales to gargantuan heights um, or <laughs> buys a very nice car, et cetera. But this one is very near and dear to me. And I think where it all stems from is, so growing up, I was an only child. And... My parents, they were quite older, which means, you know, I experienced loss, their relatives, parents, et cetera, on a fairly regular basis at a very young age. So I was always very conscious of the concept of death. So it's really, it's really been a driving factor, I would say, fairly foundational in my upbringing. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So if you had a chance to kind of Elon Musk this and download your consciousness or your, your memories into some kind of sentient or synthetic awareness like would you be like first in line or second well i'd be first but <laughs> i think in order to achieve i give this a lot of thought mm -hmm. actually. clearly clearly so <laughs> so uh, elon musk warns a lot about the dangers of ai you know the ai singularity when it happens there's an ai that's smarter than us and there, you know there's no turning back and in order to compete with that what we're going to need to do is to transplant our consciousness so if you, you know you can't beat them join them essentially right to achieve some sort of immortality and join the so when I kind of think about that, this is how, and I think my you know, my, my co-founders probably would hate me for saying this, but this is how, you know, I, I really think Dear Life ties into all of that. So Neuralink is essentially working on a way to extract consciousness. Think about like a heart transplant. They're, they're, they're looking to harvest your heart, if you will. But Dear Life 
we're not really focused on the harvesting of the heart, but more so constructing the end vehicle, if you will, the body that the heart will be translated to or transplanted to. So the way that that works is, you know, ideally we capture almost every single memory that you have. So we replicate the hippocampus, but that would still be insufficient. We need to take it a step further if we wanted to successfully create that secondary vehicle. We're going to need to look at the limbic system, which is the emotional and behavioral part of the brain. Memories alone won't suffice. So if we were successful in creating kind of that, that body that your consciousness can be translated into, that opens up a whole new layer of conversations, which is, you know, can we successfully transplant ourselves into an AI? Can we successfully transplant our biological selves into digital selves? Right. So this sounds like to me, the way you're putting it, it sounds like the, you know, the work of a lifetime. Because of course, technology changes and people change with it. And, and you know, you're going to need to be keeping abreast of things like starting with, you know, social media accounts and kind of direct capture and maybe holographic stuff. Is, is that your thing? Is like dear life going to be like an evolution of your understanding and relationship to mortality? Like as technology changes, your approach updates and evolves so that it's always the closest we can get to that replication, as you put it. Correct. Is, is that sort of the long game here? Yeah, so on, on a more personal note, my, my ambitions would sort of look something as such. So in terms of evolution, we, we just wouldn't get from A to Z. Right, of course. The way that it would work is we would generate an experience of your life story. So that's what we're currently working on. You know, we've been quite successful thus far, and we're going to continue to be successful in that realm. The next step would be almost sort of begin to replicate the hippocampus. So as the rate at which we capture our memories through photos and videos, and the ability for AI to look at those photos and videos and extract you know, metadata or sentiment or just further pieces of information, as that increases, well, that'll kind of give rise, that'll, be, that'll act eventually as a sufficient corpus, as a sufficient body of data to create an AI clone of yourself. But that's not transplanting consciousness yet. That's just, you know, an AI version of yourself. So that'd be step number two. Right. And I, I think we are quite close to that. I think we're likely only a few years off. But then the final step would be, okay, well, that acts as the architecture, the infrastructure, if you will, to then be a sufficient vehicle to then say, you know, if Elon Musk came up and said, Neuralink is going to be able to harvest your consciousness, copy it, and transport or transplant it somewhere, well, then we would be the end result. And that would be step three. This podcast is being brought to you by the folks at Shred Capital. At Shred Capital, we're looking for ferocious startups and fearless founders that are taking their first or ideally their second swing at a game-changing new venture. We provide business optimization consulting. We provide non-dilutive financing. We provide a shoulder to cry on, and we want to lead, seed, or syndicate your first equity investment. So check us out, Shred Capital. That's at shredcapital.com or Shred Capital at any of your favorite social media platforms. Do people have to think about making this investment now? Let's say you're an individual in your 30s, right? Should people be thinking, okay, I need to start to make this a part of my life's investment plan so that I'm capturing or updating or being contemporaneous over the next 30, 40 years so that as technology evolves, the, the blueprint of me has a higher and higher fidelity, right? Kind of like if you read science fiction, you know, in the William Gibson novels, 
there's like the Dixie Flatline, which is this AI recreation of this character, right? As a completely synthetic being. Is that what we're in for now? Is that where people are going to go? They're going to evade their fear of death by constantly like doing a basically an iPhone backup of themselves as they go forward. I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, I could be wrong, but I think the answer is yes. So my personal take on it is that there exists a threshold. And as long as you have enough data to meet that threshold, it will enable an AI digital clone of yourself, whether that be your mix of photos, videos, inputted data, etc. I, I think there certainly exists that threshold. How would you capture things like personality, like humor or tone or character, like quirks, you know? Is that within the, the realm of what's possible? It is. Now, the feasibility can certainly come into question. I think mm. for that to be possible, I think you would need a constant stream of access to your surroundings, the audio surroundings with your phone. So if it could capture the way that you converse, the way that you interact with people, and pick up on those quirks and tones and behaviors, I think it could start to formulate an understanding of those intangibles mm -hmm. of the emotional side of you. Because right now you take people through kind of a scripted exercise. Like, hey, we got to get the main food groups here of your life, right? Like that's how your life approaches it. It's you, you have a capture methodology. Is that right? Yeah. So short term, I mean, we're, we're certainly focused very much on your life story. Yep. And we certainly have capture mechanisms around media, narratives, you know, people just recounting their life stories to kind of formulate these experiences. But yeah, the, the more long-term AI clones, you know, transplanting of consciousness, those capture mechanisms are, are likely still the form. Interesting. So like in the future, you can have your annoying uncle come to every Thanksgiving forever. Yeah, you, because, could. you, know, you could. Like sense of humor never gets updated. Same joke. Here it comes. There we go. This is very interesting. Like as a pursuit, I must confess, like the more I hear you talk about, the more I think, you know, does it worry you? Like back to the fear of the founder in you that you are, I mean, you're clearly early, right? Like you're clearly early. Does that worry you that you've got this really compelling idea and understanding the human psychology and the technology and the consumer awareness, maybe not quite where it needs to be to be successful and yet you know you'll need to keep raising capital you want to keep your own company in formation waiting for the day because you know people do say hey you want to be in the right place at the right time sometimes you want to find the right place and wait is that more your strategy it's an interesting concept for sure and i think that certainly plays a part of our strategy I think yeah, short term, because the mechanisms for capture aren't there yet, and the stream of data between ourselves and our digital devices, although it's increasing, it's still not there yet. So then what can we do in the short term? Well, it, it is offer people a beautiful experience of their life story. And I think that market is only going to grow by <laughs> probably tenfold over yeah. the next little bit. Yeah. You know, it's a huge market, people capturing their life story. Yeah, exactly. And people don't think about it. People, I mean, look, people don't think about wills, right? Right. And they should like, but I, every person I've ever talked to, if the subject of a will has ever come up, it's like either haven't done it, needs to be updated, don't know where it is. Like, you know, it's one of those three exactly. things. <laughs> so you need to affect a bit of a sea change in people's psychology. Do you think that demographically you're hitting this at the right time? Oh, absolutely. Because like the boomer generation is kind of aging up, right? They're getting into that zone. Yep. They're at least familiar with technology nowadays and, you know, sort of stereotypically have a sort of a generational sense of vanity about their place in the universe. <laughs> is that the that part of the bell curve for you, is trying to connect with those folks? Absolutely. That, you nailed it right there. There's two driving factors that will 
make our business successful over the next several years. The first of which is the increased rate of capture digitally of our lives. So that's posting to Facebook, Instagram, taking photos, videos, etc. You know, it's just exponential uh, in terms of the increase of our memory capture. So that will continue and that will facilitate, you know, your life story or allow us to facilitate an automated experience of your life story. The other and likely the more important one is the increase in society's rise in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. So Maslow's hierarchy is essentially kind of this pyramid, if you will, that outlines the different needs of a human. And at the very top, there's self-actualization. I think it's only recent that the majority of society kind of resides in that space of Maslow's hierarchy. And in that space, it allows people to question things that they've never really had the time or ability to question before. A lot of people, you know, were focused on just shelter and basic needs like water, et cetera. And then, you know, it was, we're going to university and all these things. And then eventually we got to here where a lot of people now talk about spirituality, self-reflection. Am I living a good life? Can I improve? All of these things. And I think that has prompted people to think about their life and their legacy more than ever. And we recently did a study, we we conducted a a survey, and the results showed that nearly 60% of people are now conscious of this problem that they face, this existential problem, if you will. So they began journaling their life story, all of their memories and reflecting so they can improve moving forward, et cetera. So people actually are cognizant of this problem. They're taking action in makeshift ways. Mm -hmm. But I think due to the increase in Maslow's hierarchy, I think this is going to make well, it, it, you do raise a good point. I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought up journaling because there are kind of two kinds of personal story, I think. You know, I could be wrong on this, but I, I don't think I'm too far off. You know, there's the journaling, there's the diary, there's the quotidian details. I woke up, I had a croissant for breakfast, I had coffee, coffee was a bit cold, got in the car, came to the office, did a podcast, right? Yep. And then there is more the hero's journey, the dramatic arc of a person, yep. you know? Because you, you look at that same body of information and you define it now through overcoming a central challenge or a central journey to them as an individual where their life is contextualized through that through line as opposed to all the other stuff. I mean, that's a tough one for people to, to kind of wrap their minds around is to see themselves as the, to be able to articulate themselves as the hero of their own journey in a way that their descendants, when they would look at this digital footprint of themselves, would say, wow, I wish I'd known my great-grandfather, mm-hmm. right? Like, how do you get at that? Or is that still something you folks are trying to wrestle with? Yeah, so more of the, I guess, ancestral question. We haven't really gotten much at that, certainly focused on the here and the now, the, the individuals that are here and alive. But you, you raise a good question. You know, how do you get people to think about their lives less as the mundane and more of the hero's journey, if you will? And... I think it kind of relates back to almost crossing the chasm, if you will, mm-hmm. where you know we're not going to appeal to everyone at first, but those who we're likely to appeal to are already those that think of their life as this grandiose story. And then as we continue to scale upwards, we'll likely need to, to shift the concept a little bit to fit mainstream perspectives and values. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, you're right. Like initially there's probably more of a vanity to play here, I suppose. Like, yeah. I mean, there are people that, hire writers to ghostwrite their life story and they either publish that they're public figures or they just keep a copy for themselves and hand it on to the next generation. And, you know, I think once people start having kids and start to think about the longevity, like, you know, your son, daughter is going to be around longer than you are. Chances are. 
and they're going to have an immediate experience of you, hopefully a good one. And then their grandkids are going to have kind of a distilled experience of you, hopefully a good one. And then after that, it gets very hazy, yeah. you know, and then, yeah, I guess there was that dread in us that we become this hazy recollection that's less and less tethered to who we thought we were, the things we thought we valued. And those things might even become alien to people 100 years from now, like, oh, you want to be in an indie band. Why would you want to make music? We have AIs that make better music than humans. Like, why would your ancestor would have wanted that? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, like the, the frame of reference might shift enough that the understanding breaks, you know? So it is a very complicated thing. Like, actually, you you you, you kind of bummed me out here. The rest of the day, I'm going to be having all these existential musings. But uh, but it, but is there a good business there? Like, is there a good startup? I mean, you're still a small band of fellow travelers, if I understand correctly, and you're you're based in you know a city which has got a lot of charm growing quickly. But it's not like a Silicon Valley. You know, it's not a New York or a Boston. How does that hit you as a as the operator? Do you, do you think, how do we scale? How do we up our game to really meet the potential that we're seeing? Whether it's through better technology or access to better science or better research or more people, more capital, like all the usual startup day-to-day questions that are less philosophical, I suppose. So I think remote has completely changed the game for founders in smaller cities. Just the access to knowledge is at a level that's really never been before experience. So if you look at our team composite currently, there is certainly a, a small concentration in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but it's now becoming quite broad. We now have team members in Montreal, Toronto, Boston, and we're now looking at bringing on a few more people on board that really are spaced out all over the world. One example, he's a PhD overseas, and you know many would consider him the leading resource in the AI digital human space, if you will. And I've developed over the past couple of weeks a fantastic relationship with him. His knowledge is certainly just absolutely unparalleled. And so it's resources like these who are at the top of the game when you consider the world and all the people in it that we're able to connect to, bring on board, engage with, and pull from, I think is really going to be able to facilitate our growth and scale and help us achieve our ambitions. Interesting. Interesting. And again, the nice thing is you can take a bit of a longer game here in a sense, right? Like, I mean, it's not a problem that's going to be solved and done, right? You're not delivering pet food online, right? Like it's, you know, this is a space that will be evolving. And I think, you know, you're quite correct. There's going to be ongoing interest in this. Do you actually, do you have maybe the other fear that you might be a little more I guess, strangled by your growth, if this really starts to resonate with not so much with people initially, because I think you've got a bit of a longer curve there. But let's say with investors, with people that say, you know, this is a trend that will only get bigger and bigger and bigger. We got to grow you faster and faster and faster. I mean, do you worry conversely about that end of things? Because if you do have access to global capital, global talent, global tech, you know, theoretically, your speed of advance is not as limited as it might have been 10 years ago. Correct. I think that might be the more rational fear of the two. I think there's certainly a sizable amount of inertia, but once we start to overcome that and we really do produce a solution that is viable, feasible, usable, then that certainly is a potential challenge. How can we really manage the scale of this? Because when you think about it, it's relevant to every single person in the world with a digital device you know, at scale. 
So yeah, I certainly think that's the larger of the two challenges. And I think it's one where we aren't equipped to solve it now, but we need to be the people that become equipped to solve it. Very cool. Well, listen, let, let's leave it there for today. I mean, obviously you're on a, a hero's journey of your own right now. And I'm very curious to see where it kind of goes. Because again, what we're tapping into is maybe, again, one of the most profound human neuroses that we've tried to deal with in the past through religion and superstition. And you know, now maybe with better practice of awareness and, and technology is the preservation of ourselves or the essence of who we are. And you know, you can spend a lifetime wrestling with that problem. And I'm sure you'll find new challenges all the time. So delighted to have had you on the show today. Really looking forward to see where it goes next. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and likewise. Perfect. So if people need to check you out or they want to start checking you out, it's deer.life for your website. And if they want to start uh, being mindful about capturing their life now while waiting for technology to catch up, what's one thing an audience member should do? Like one practice you'd say, hey, you know what you should do? Do this thing because you'll be glad you did. I would say to continue to capture our precious moments. I believe very firmly that capturing your precious moments, memories, stories, whether that be through photos, videos, or journaling, allows you this ability to achieve such nostalgia and happiness at a later date that it's just unparalleled. And with that capture, not only are some, you know, a company like ourselves able to offer you this beautiful re-experiencing of your moments and memories, but just maybe someday that'll act as the body of data that gives rise to your artificially intelligent cloak. Very cool. So make sure you're backing up your uh, photos in the, in the cloud, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Don't lose them. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Harrison, really interesting conversation. Delightful. We can go on for hours, I'm sure. Deer.life, folks, if you haven't checked out, you really, really should because, you know, all of our roads lead us ultimately to one place. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you, I hope, in a few more months and see where you stand. Thanks, man. So I'd like to thank Harrison for joining us today. Fascinating conversation. It, it definitely bounced in a few directions that I, I wasn't expecting when I got up this morning, but always good to have a, a real brain stretcher like that. And, you know, Mike, when I think about this one show, it, it does kind of remind me that we, we get so fixed on when you're a startup, your next 18 months of runway, the three-year mission, the five-year exit, you know, the expectations of your venture investors, you know, in seven-year windows that we often bound our futures in those terms. But if you pan back just a tiny bit, some of the curve jumping ideas may be closer than we think. Once we lift our heads up a bit, we might actually find that some of these notions that seem really fanciful might just be right around the corner. Yeah, especially, you know, what he was talking about in terms of what you can do now to prepare for, you know, in his case, what it would look like to have your digital eulogy almost that you're creating for yourself in a way. And it is really interesting to think about in the terms that you talk about of, of how soon some of these things might be coming into focus and how our actions today may or may not be influencing those things in profound ways. So it's part of the legacy building thing that he talks about is just almost being conscious and aware of our own actions now and how that's going to come to fruition in the future because the future is really just around the corner. Yeah, very true. I mean, even like, you know, touchscreen devices 15 years ago, almost nothing in terms of study. 15 years later, fast forward, you know, there are punchline in movies, there are common social trope. It was pure science fiction not that long ago. Now it's, it's part of the fabric of our realities, but you know, 
at the same time, when it comes to the how I would like to be remembered or viewed or whatnot, the only, this is gonna be like the first line of my will and testament. Aside from any kind of virtual recreation of me, it will be just a simple instruction to my family and the executive of my estate, which is delete my search history. <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't need that legacy exactly. You know, I'm not sure yours might be, but that would be mine. Uh, and hopefully Harrison takes that on board. Like he needs like a nuke key, you know, as well. Once the obituary is published, all this shit gets deleted. Uh, any other thoughts? No, I do think it is interesting though, like you mentioned, you know, with those technologies that when they're first introduced and there's almost like an immediate knee-jerk reaction to many people to reject them because they feel like they might not be natural. And I think it would be not unheard of for people to have that sort of reaction hearing Harrison talk about the ideas that they're trying to work with. But again, like you mentioned, things that sort of seem too outlandish and too far-fetched, many times we've seen with technology, I mean, they become adapted and pretty commonplace very shortly after. So it is interesting to think about these things, even if they might not be our reality today, because it might be very shortly from now something that we're, we're, we're having real serious conversations about. Yeah, and, and you know, I will say this, like, you know, I'm a fairly recent father, you're about to become one. Your perspective does change when you actually suddenly have a legacy to pass on. Right? When you have a kid or kids or whatever, you start to think with things a little bit differently, right? And this is a way to kind of set a little bit of that dialogue, a dialogue with your future self or your descendants or the people that sort of knew you or have heard of you uh, in the years to come. Uh, and we really haven't had a chance to do that before as a species or a civilization. You know, there was really no chance to know these things in any way until fairly recently. And this, this might be a way that is is kind of powerful and might redefine our relationships with the idea of our mortality. I don't know. Interesting. I mean, you know, it, it is a big idea, you know, and we like big ideas for founders because uh, they're the ones worth pursuing. And uh, who knows, like this young guy, over the course of his career, you know, he may actually crack the uh, the code on this thing. And then it's going to a very big deal. So that that's it for today. Thank you for joining us. Apparently, we no longer need to fear death. Thanks to the innovations that are coming our way. Thank you to Smith and his team at Dear Life. Uh, join us again next time where we will explore Probably not such an existential issue, but certainly a fascinating one on this podcast. Take care. Okay, so... That does it for the day. The pod is done. I want to thank our guest. I want to thank our producer, Mike, in the control room for all of his thoughts and his feedback and his wisdom. And of course, his technical skills. That's what makes all this happen. Our podcast is What Freaks Out Founders, where we explore not just the good stuff, but especially the bad stuff, the anxieties, the neuroses, those things that go bump in the night, and not just for the founder, but for the investor. And in our experience, that's true whether you're in Silicon Valley, you're in New York, you're in Berlin, or you're in Saskatoon. It's these common shared things that we're all working really hard to overcome. So check us out online, wherever good podcasts are found. And if you want to check out our sponsors at Shred Capital at shredcapital.com, they can be found online and on all your favorite social platforms, Shred Capital tweets, Shred Capital shares, and Shred Capital supports. So hopefully they work for you. Hopefully you come back for the next episode. And if you have an idea or maybe an especially neurotic founder that you'd like us to talk with, we hope you get in touch. Have a great day.